today I have with me Tanya Holthus. She is a licensed psychologist, and I will just give you a heads up. You, if you are not driving, you are going to want to grab a pen or a pencil and some paper because this one is a note taker. There is so much helpful, practical knowledge and useful information in this episode. And this episode was actually inspired by a listener that requested this topic. So I want to tell you a little bit about Tanya. Like I said, she is a licensed psychologist and she works with a wide variety of clients. And what I can tell you is that she is here today having this conversation because she is passionate about raising awareness and helping people. She actually has a waiting list. So she's not doing this to build her business or get more clients. She's doing this out of the kindness and goodness of her heart to have this conversation with us, to share her expertise and wisdom. And like I said, this is chock full of helpful, practical information. So Tanya specializes in healing trauma and helping people with many types of issues, including post-traumatic stress, attachment, emotional and relational abuse, anxiety, depression, relationship issues. But what she's most passionate about is what she is here today to talk to us about, and it's overcoming relationships involving narcissistic abuse and specifically around those parent-child relationships. So as we dig into this, you know, she really takes things from an integrative approach and in her bio, it says that people who have worked with her have described her as warm, compassionate, easy to talk to, empathetic, and reliable. Let me just tell you that all of that is true and so much more. This conversation, we could have talked for days, and I may even just have to have her back because there was so much to talk about, but you're going to hear some really useful, practical information on what it's like to be a child of a narcissist, how those types of things present, how that affects your relationships and your coping mechanisms and your behaviors. And then also what I think is going to be really useful and helpful is what it's like to have to co-parent with a narcissist. And she gives some useful, helpful tips. And like I said, you are going to want to get a pen and paper out and listen along to this. We are sipping on some iced tea today for this conversation. So I hope what you're sipping on is delicious and enjoy this conversation. Tanya, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so excited about this conversation. So as I told you, this was a request from a listener awesome. who was really interested in this topic of and you're an expert on this. You're an expert on narcissism and children of narcissistic parents. Mm -hmm. And when you and I first talked, I kind of told you, I've recently become open to talking about this, that I am kind of a self-diagnosed child of a narcissistic parent. Sure. So I'm really passionate about this. And part of the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because these words like narcissism mm -hmm. and gaslighting and, you know, I, I, I could probably think of a whole bunch of other ones, yeah. but they're thrown around so flippantly now. Right. 
And that's why I wanted to bring you on as an expert in this yeah. area. And so let's start with, and, and you know, pre-show, you and I have talked about how these behaviors affect children of narcissists very differently at different ages. So mm. how do you feel about kind of starting in like, you know, childhood, adolescent kind of sure. age and, and start there? And then we can kind of go through how that affects teenagers and then adults and adults in relationships and those coping mechanisms and behaviors. Sure. Yeah, there's so much to say. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's not like quite broken down by like, this is what happens at this age. And this is what happens at this age. But what I will say is during the early formative years, you know, um, for cognitive development, emotional development, um, you are very, very much reliant on, you know, feedback from your environment about how to make sense of yourself and how to make sense of yourself in the world. And so what happens a lot when, when you have um, a, a parent with narcissism, right, is somebody who um, is emotionally abusive or, or emotionally manipulative. So they are doing things like denying your reality, um, being overly critical, um, not making you feel seen or heard, telling you that the way you feel is wrong, that something that things that you're doing are wrong when you're when you're not actually doing anything wrong. Mm. So I think what happens from a young age is people start to feel confused about what's real and what isn't. Um, and that really impacts their like their ability to trust their own emotions and really be, to be able to trust like who they feel they are. Um, then they start to sort of seek that um, validation externally, right? So like if I have this feeling and it's constantly shut down by my parent, then I don't know if I can trust that feeling. So then now I have to sort of seek it externally to see is that, it, is that accurate or is that not accurate? So there's a lot of identity development issues that happen um, and just like a lot of anxiety for sure too about um, you know feeling safe because it doesn't feel safe when you have a parent that does that to you. So that happens really early on. Um, and I think like the confusion piece, especially about what's real and what isn't is huge for, for young kids. Okay, so like I told you, I just have recently become open about this because this parent of mine is still alive. And so I try yep. to be very respectful about it, yes. but also talk about it from my own experiences because like you said, when your experience is shut down and your feelings are shut down and you're told that that's not valid, you know, that really can shape things. And you used the word, it's a form of emotional abuse and emotional manipulation. Mm -hmm. And that hit me hard. I think it was only about a month ago where I was able to actually use those words as yeah. a 43 year old yeah. grown ass adult right. to, to say that and like acknowledge that and recognize that. So I think you acknowledging that and giving that validation for people yes. is really huge. And I think a lot of people are going to relate to that. Yeah. The other thing that you said was, you know, seeking validation and, you know, when you're kind of told that your needs and your emotions don't matter mm -hmm. or aren't put first. And really as a child, that should be it's like, right, you should be, yeah, it's right. the opposite of what should be happening, right? Like yep. unconditional love and support. And so 
I imagine that when you are being told you're not good enough or that's not right, mm -hmm. then you start to try to overcompensate. Is that, mm -hmm. is that something that you see in practice? Totally. Yeah. So, so how this can manifest kind of behaviorally, right, is because the child is trying to seek that external validation, they will try to, you'll see like perfectionism develop. You'll see a lot of overachieving, right? Cause you're trying to get that praise and approval from this, you know, critically and emotionally abusive parent. And you think if I can just do this, right? Right. Or if I can just do this the best, then maybe they'll love me or maybe they'll show me that. And, you know, you use the word, um, conditional love, right? It's, mm. it's, or unconditional love with people with narcissism, it's very conditional, right? So that just adds a whole element of confusion and um, just hurt and bad things in that situation. Yes, but they, but, but kids will act out in that way um, to get that validation or sometimes they get really highly anxious, mm -hmm. um, especially in social situations. They don't trust other people. They're already feeling really insecure about who they are. So I see a lot of kids, you know, younger kids, especially like middle school and high school as if that's not hard enough already, right? But they'll be very kind of withdrawn and anxious and have a lot of difficulty sometimes with social relationships with peers. Um, so that's also another thing that can happen too when you have a parent with narcissism. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I almost started laughing when you said perfectionism and high achieving, because yeah. that is definitely the direction that I went like perfectionism, people pleasing, you know, yes. because you get used to that, like walking on eggshells kind of feeling. And again, that's why I wanted to have this conversation yeah. because so often we hear about the behaviors of narcissists. Right. And so I think for talking about the behaviors of the victims, is that okay right. to use that word? Yeah. Like the victims yep. of totally. the narcissism, I just want to provide that validation for people. So yes. Jem, if you're listening and you are like hearing, oh my gosh. And it, it's not to say that if you're a perfectionist or people pleaser or high achiever that you sure. have a narcissistic parent, right? Sure. But that's why it's in, so. That's why it's so important for us to have the dialogue of what it looks like on kind of both sides, right. so that you can you really have the full picture. And that's why yep. you, as the expert, yes. like that, see this all the time. Yep. And the fact that you're doing this out of the kindness of your heart to have this conversation to put this information out into the world and put this content out there because right. you don't even have the bandwidth to take on more patients. Uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, right? Like, and like my heart goes out too because I have people contacting me all the time saying, like, oh my gosh, this is my exact situation and I can't find anybody else that can kind of help me with this in the way that you can. And it like breaks my heart, right? That I'm, I, I do have a wait list, but it's just, it speaks to how prevalent this is and it's crushing, right? It's really crushing people. So, um, you know, the other piece that you said too about the people pleasing. So, you know, it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a parent with narcissism. And we'll, we can also talk today about how narcissism is really like on a spectrum, right? So, so if your, your parent, right, isn't a full blown narcissist, right, or has narcissistic personality disorder, um, there, they can still have tendencies. And when the, the people pleasing piece really comes from kind of codependency, right? And when we, when we talk about codependency, what we mean is that, you know, especially if you're a child of a parent with narcissism and you have that kind of low self-esteem or insecurity about yourself, you are going to 
Um, look for that external validation, but also what you're doing is you are trying to pacify the that parent, right? So, so the parent that is overly critical or maybe has mood swings, right? People with narcissism have kind of those rage, those narcissistic rages, right? When they feel um, threatened in some way. And if as the child, you can just do something to sort of make them feel better, you have a little bit more control over their mood and now you feel safe. And you also feel like, okay, I did something good or maybe now they're approving me approving of me and you kind of get stuck in that cycle of people pleasing as a form of protection and as a form of like fueling how good you feel and that is really that codependency piece because it's putting their needs before your own needs but that can be true of parents who have addiction right that can be true of people that just have low self-esteem in general for other reasons so um Anyways, I just wanted to kind of add that piece, but that's a huge thing that comes out of, I said, well, probably one of the biggest things that comes out of being a child of a parent with narcissism. That is, I think that whole kind of the way you told that almost in like a story too of that cycle and how you do that to control the mood and, and almost like diffuse it, right? Because these adult narcissists, it's almost like they have adult temper tantrums. Oh yeah. You know, and so, and that it's, if it, they do it in public, it's humiliating, it's embarrassing, mm -hmm. it's mortifying for the person mm -hmm. that's kind of on the receiving end of it. Sure. Even if it's not in public, it sure. still can feel that way. And I, I say that having had those experiences sure. with um, a different family member. Okay. Um, and so I think that's really interesting, like such a helpful way to put it. So I really, yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah. And I would say too, you know, um, I, I see that less often in my practice where the, the adult kind of temper tantrum that you're explaining, that that happens in public because a person with narcissism needs to preserve that image so much. And so if that's happening, what has happened is you have sort of pushed a button on that fragility and that defensive response is coming out into like out of a fight flight freeze, it's going into that fight mode and they're pretty out of control, right? You've really pushed something that was, you know, pretty vulnerable for them. So but, uh, more often it happens in private and I, you know, not to be kind of belittling or demeaning to the person with narcissism, but honestly, neurologically, what's happening in their brain is they are going into that fight flight response because they feel threatened. So what we're talking about from a neurological perspective is the midbrain, where, which is where kind of fight flight lives, um, the limbic system that is lit up. And when that is lit up, literally access to the prefrontal cortex is cut off. So prefrontal cortex is kind of here, and that is impulse control, emotion regulation, reasoning, um, organization, right? So they are in a very irrational kind of place. And so I often tell people, you know, when, when you are dealing with someone with narcissism and they're in that state, conceptualize them very similar to like a toddler because it's a very similar um, kind of presentation neurologically. Or I even tell people, you know, if you were, you know, came up to somebody on the street who was severely intoxicated and belligerent, right? You're not, you're not really gonna engage in that because you know that they don't have access to anything in that moment. And that's the same with a person with narcissism that goes into that, into that rage. 
that so I'm a science nerd yeah. and so the like how you just talked about like the brain and how it's reacting yeah. and I think that's also helpful for people to yes. understand because like I said things get thrown around so flippantly so to have someone like you that can really walk us through exactly what's happening and that's probably yeah. why like you said it it's almost like in a toddler type of stage and that's why sometimes it's referred to at like these outbursts or outbreaks as um you know temper tantrums right. kind of or right. these, you know, raging uppers. You also talked about narcissistic fragility. And mm-hmm. um, one of the ways, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about my book, right? So like my book, I talk about my narcissistic ex. Mm. And, you know, he still talks about me all the time. <laughs> and it's because of that narcissistic fragility, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have made it clear that I see you and I see your behaviors and I'm never going to unsee it. I can see you coming from a mile away now. Mm -hmm. And so is that part of it? Like that fragility is when a narcissist knows that someone has fully seen them without their mask. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot to say about that. So the, so from a, from like a really diagnostic perspective and I look at everything through a trauma lens because, you know, and I also, I think uh, just another kind of side note, uh, there's so much out there on social media right now um, and, and, and everywhere, right, about this topic. It's a really hot topic right now. And I think in order to, you know, validate the, the, the victim, right, in order to really, like, understand what's happening, we sort of have to almost dehumanize the person with narcissist, right, and break it down. Um, however, they are human beings. And this, this personality disorder comes from a cluster of personality disorders that are, are clinically really attachment disorders. Anybody that has a, a really true narcissistic personality disorder has a deep, deep wound, usually during the early formative years of some type of trauma that happened to them, usually um, interpersonal or relational in some manner. And what the psyche does then, um, unconsciously is it goes, okay, this is, this is too hard. This is too fragile. There's too much fear. There's too much shame. There's too much, whatever. We're going to overcompensate and go way on the other side. And I'm going to put you up on this pedestal where you feel like nothing can harm you. You can do no wrong. You're the best right? And that's going to, that's their sort of protective factor. So everything else is sort of denied unconsciously. Sometimes there's conscious denial, but usually it's unconscious denial. So when, so that, that's the fragility, right? Like that, whatever that, that core event was that happened that like made this bud, right? And lots of people have trauma and not everybody develops narcissism, but this is just one way that that trauma can manifest. And unfortunately does prevalently but um so if you're if you are pushing on that fragility if you're pushing any of those buttons right that would induce blame shame um wrongdoing anything to that um to that narcissist they are going to react very strongly in that that it like triggers that fight flight freeze response almost as if like you were in a very dangerous or fatal situation. So more often there's that rage that they go into kind of the fight response, but there's also dissociation 
to um, a freeze response. So the other kind of piece of this, right, is sometimes, you know, this rage might happen, right? And the person with narcissism will either completely deny that it happened, could be intentional, but a lot of times they don't remember because they dissociated during the rage, right? And they have this really pervasive, chronic, um, unconscious repression of the things that they're doing wrong because if they were if they were in a position of having to like really um, acknowledge that they were doing things wrong, then they would have to deal with the guilt and the shame and that's completely unsafe for them. So yes, there is a fragility there and um, it does come out, you know, um, in a lot of different ways, but it's, it's, you want to be careful when you poke that in somebody with true narcissism. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And the other thing too is, you know, and I think that's the hard thing being a person that is a victim of being in a narcissistic relationship is, you know, yes, many people experience trauma and then we'll go on the other side of like post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard sometimes then to understand how these people have these behaviors that go on just damaging and hurting other people yeah. without that guilt or shame. But that makes sense that you wouldn't be able to have those feelings by it's continuing. Yeah. By continuing to be able to do that harm to other people. Right. Whether, like you said, intentionally or unintentionally. Right. And, you know, there's a piece, too, that they believe that they were fair and valid in the way that they responded. They believe that they were entitled to have that aggression or to have that affair or to whatever because you did something wrong. Right. So part of part of their um, what they're incapable of. Right. Again, is taking on that responsibility for doing something wrong. And that supports that sense of entitlement. And so if they, to your point, right, if they're not able to acknowledge that they're doing anything wrong, they, they're not going to change their behavior, right? Yes. And, but they really, truly believe it. So there's also like, because of what's happening in their psyche, there's also, I, I tell my clients all the time, it's very, very similar or close to like a delusional disorder, right? Because, and that's where the pathological lying comes in they they're they're fighting their stance because they believe that it's true and it's so nonsensical to the other person and that also creates so much confusion right because you're like wow they are really convinced and then the other person is like well wait are they right am i did i do so is like is there something that i did wrong here is it my fault is it and so it's just kind of that crazy making um you know that happens but yeah. yeah, the pathological lying is really a difficult thing to live with because you do start to then question things and you question other people. And, you know, you talked about that earlier. You know, yep. you start to question things and question truth and trust in other people. Yep. And I think that something that you said earlier, I, I want to dive into yep. a little bit more because I'm passionate about this. You clearly are, too about narcissism and oh they're a narcissist he's a narcissist she's a narcissist is thrown around mm -hmm. all the time now inappropriately really right and so there are narcissistic behaviors yes narcissistic tendencies yes and narcissistic personality disorder right and like narcissism like narcissistic behaviors mm -hmm. some of that like everyone's going to have some sure 
Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. And some of that comes from confidence, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's where we sometimes get our self-esteem from and like feeling good about ourselves or wanting to get a high achievement and a pat on the back or an at a girl or an at a boy. Right. Right. And, you know, kind of feeling your self-esteem. So let's talk about, can you give a little bit more perspective on that full spectrum of what it takes or, you know, like what it really means to have narcissistic personality disorder? Yes. So, you know, first of all, to make something a disorder from a clinical perspective, um, there has to be really significant impairment in the person's functioning and relationships. So somebody who truly has narcissistic personality disorder, you're going to see that show up in unstable relationships. Um, A lot of them struggle to hold a job, um, all sorts of things in their life that they're just not... um, they're going to kind of fall apart over time. There are some people with NPD that are, you know, more successful. Um, I would say Trump is one of them. Can I say that? You can say that. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of experts will use him as an example because so many people know who that is. Right. 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 Um, And, and I would say a lot of the time too, they, and, and one of the diagnostic criterion actually for NPD is that they have this sort of sense of entitlement with nothing really to show for it, right? Mm. Um, so so that's that's part of it. But okay, so talking about the spectrum. Can we say can you ahead. say that one more time that they have a false sense of entitlement? Yes. They don't with nothing to show for it. Right. Or nothing to prove it. Right. Or very little. Yeah. Or they make things up to sort of support it when we kind of dive deeper and you're like no so they might fib on their resume totally and say that they have degrees that they don't have yep or that they've held jobs or titles that they never had right wow yep yep that totally happens so so like having the the full-blown diagnosis right has to be impairing um, they have to really have that lack of empathy, that sense of grandiosity, um, and they have to meet, you know, several other um, five other kind of air like criterion, right? So when I say people are on the spectrum, I mean both like full blown diagnosis versus only some of the symptoms, right? Versus um, then we talk about like extremes of it. So another kind of buzzwords that are out there, right, which are, you know, legit, are like covert and overt narcissism, right? So covert, um, obviously, is more subtle signs. And that's maybe somewhat comparable to like a sociopath, right? Like, um, everyone thinks they have this kind of charming, you know, um, presentation to others, which um, is helpful for them to kind of keep status, right? And they, they're they very choosy about who they, they want to be, like they need kind of the more elite or the higher status, right, to kind of pump them up. Those people aren't necessarily going to see the negative kind of aspects of the personality disorder. Um, so so there's the more covert, right, where then it's like they, they're kind of um, – they're showing more of that signs of abuse and manipulation and things to people closer to them, which then, of course, just makes those people 
feel crazy when they try to talk about these things and everyone else is going, no, I don't see that or that could never be. Right. right? It's it's really um, more denial of their reality. Right. More isolation. Um, and then, of course, the overt is like people who are very vindictive, malicious. Um, you know, they might be physically abusive. They might, um, you know, cheat on their spouses, like those kinds of things. Um, where there's more like clear signs of, of kind of that direct abuse, but can they have a little bit of all of it? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, right. And there's everyone in between too. And so, you know, it's funny, like where it's just working with this kind of primarily in my practice, I get like everyone under the sun. And I had one person recently who came in and she was like, I just can't figure out what happened with my ex. And she was telling me about him and he was, um, he was kind of diagnosing himself with narcissism and afraid that he had narcissism. And then he started exhibiting signs of the narcissism and, but he was trying to get better. Like that's a very odd presentation, right? Somebody who has narcissism is not going to say, yep, I have it. They're not going to admit to their faults. They're not going to try to get treated usually, but there was tendencies there for sure. So it's, I mean, we're talking yeah, it's all, it's a huge range. Okay. That was going to be one of my next questions is how underdiagnosed is narcissism? Very. So the problem is, you know, this has become, you know, again, wildly popular. And that is from the accounts of the victims, right? Because somebody with narcissism they don't think that they're doing anything wrong. They don't think there's anything wrong with them. They think it's everyone else's fault. They're not going to go in for treatment, right? They're not going to participate in research. Um, so th I have had a handful of people with narcissism come in to see me. I have one referral who's coming to see me next week. Always. I, I mean, if not, you know, almost always, it's because they were given an ultimatum. They are in a position of losing status. They're threat like they've been threatened divorce. They've been threatened to take the kids away. They've been threatened to lose their job. They're gonna they're at some crossroads where they're gonna lose. And so in order to pacify the person and and maintain that supply for themselves, they will go to therapy. And what that usually looks like is a lot of denial, a lot of blaming other people, and when they're confronted. Um, about anything, uh, they stop coming to therapy because I'm, you know, crazy and wrong. So, oh my gosh, oh, everybody's always crazy. That's like one of my very favorite lines. Mm -hmm. it, all the exes are always crazy, mm -hmm. especially. So, how often does it happen where someone comes in and they have narcissism? And they show up as something, you know, like they show up with their mask on. It's probably easy for you to be able to see through it as a specialist in this area. Sure. But then they go back to their spouse and they're like, yeah, I went to therapy and they said, I'm not a narcissist. So that happens a lot and not necessarily with me, but it, but it has happened with me once before that I can think of. Um, it is hard to tell. And, you know, personality disorders are not something that show their face, you know, necessarily in one hour that you're going to meet them, right? You need to, usually you can't even diagnose them until you've seen them for several sessions. Um, and yes, I, I, I hear that constantly, like, like from couples that come in, right? And I'll have 
I'll meet with the one person, right, who is kind of in the victim in the situation, we'll say, and they'll say, we tried couples therapy, right? And and he just schmoozed the therapist and she couldn't see it and then nothing got done. And I, I was the one who ended up getting blamed for everything, right? Mm. And it's, so it's really, really, really hard to treat for sure um, because they can put that mask on. And I think that's also what's so hard for people that are trying to get help, whether it's in their marriage and they're still trying to work it out or whether it's, you know, co-parenting or something like that. Like the, the therapist can't quite see it because they're not showing it. Yeah. Um, and that's, it is hard to pick up on. Okay. I'm really glad you brought up the co-parenting piece yes. because- I've shared with a few listeners that you were coming on and we were going to have this conversation. Yeah. And I can't tell you the number of people that have said this is information that there is not a lot yeah. out there. Yeah. Like, let's talk about how we can help parents that have to co-parent with a narcissist. So let's say you are married to a narcissist, you get divorced, and yep. now you have to co-parent with them. Yep. I'm so glad you're asking this because I see this all the time in my practice. And this is probably like the number one thing that I have had to help people with before I even decided to specialize in this. Um, so I just first want to say, um, like my heart goes out to all those parents because it is such a helpless situation and especially with your kids, right? I mean, I don't, you can't really think of anything worse than like, like passing your kids off to someone, you know, who's abusive because the courts tell you that they have custody and they have to go and there's nothing you can do. Right. So, um, I just, just to say to those parents, like I hear you, I see you and, you know, for, for them, self-care is beyond imperative right? They have to, I mean, whatever that looks like, right? Um, um, positive coping, getting a support system, going to their own therapy, things like that. Um, the other thing that they tell me all the time is, I just feel like on my parenting time, all I'm doing is undoing all the abuse, abuse that was done while they were with the other parent. And, you know, and then just when they're getting better, I have to send the kids back again. Um, and so just know that that is an, a really hard reality. So things that parents can do, um, there's, a, there's a whole slew of things. One thing that I think about, and a lot of parents are kind of savvy um, about this already, but especially if the courts are involved, right, with the divorce and with the custody, get a messaging app. So um, Family Wizard is one of them. It's only 12 bucks a month. But the app is um, usually court mandated and it's an app for co-parenting for communication between the two parents that the attorneys and the courts have access to see. So what this does is it documents anything from the narcissistic parent, right? Um, or it shows absence of their responding um, and or they're on their best behavior. So they're no longer kind of harassing and emotionally abusing you because what happens oftentimes is the parent with NPD, right, is messaging, emailing, harassing the other parent mm -hmm. um, a lot. So and kind they of, won't stop. And they won't stop. So 
if they are not, if they're doing that and they're not using the messaging app, they're in violation, a court violation. So talk to your attorneys, right? And try to get something like that in place. So that's one thing they can do. Go can ahead. you say the name of that app one more time? Family Wizard. Family it, Wizard. Okay. Yep, it's just one of them. They, I know that there's, um, <laughs> I recently um, am working with a, a client and her, um, her ex, it says that's too expensive. He can't afford the $12 a month. Fine, right? If you're going to play that game, there's free ones. You can still get a court-appointed messaging app that, that they have access to. So, you know, they'll pull lots of cards out, but there's different ways we can get around that. Um, I would also say, like, using, um, like, less is more, less is better, right? So only communicating with them about things that are needed with the kids, short, objective language, um, because the more... The more information you give, um, or the, just the more that you say to them, the more ammo they have essentially to use against you, and they usually use it against the kids too. That's the hardest part is I think, you know, like you said, it's when they go with that narcissistic parent, you know that they're being emotionally and mentally abused, and then yeah. you have to undo that, and you can't really badmouth the other parent no. because then you're telling the kids that they're half bad. Right, right. And Which is tricky. This this is the hardest part, right? And, the, and you know, the parent has every right <laughs> to be angry and, you know, um, want to, you know, badmouth the other parent. And that causes so much anxiety for the kids because if you're going to badmouth that parent, well, now you got to go send them over there. How does that feel, right? First of all. Second of all, if you badmouth the other parent and the kid loves that other parent, now they don't know how to feel. Do I, do I, you know, honor the feelings of this one parent, but that will betray the other, right? Or do I jump in and join, but now I'm betraying the other parent? Badmouthing the parent automatically puts the kid in the middle. Neutral language always. I know it's hard, but like neutral language always about the parent no matter what. Then the other thing, you know, when the kids are coming back into your care, oftentimes, um, you know, the parent wants to ask a lot of questions. How did it go? What happened? What did you do? Um, that is also anxiety provoking for the child because now they're in a position of how do I respond? What can I say? What shouldn't I say? The parent with NPD could be very well telling them not to share. So now they don't know what to do. Um, if they had a good time, that's going to make this parent feel bad if they know that there's conflict, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have a good time. You know, now they're bad mouthing the other parent. So this is what I tell parents to do. Um, don't ask a direct question where they are, have that feel that obligation to answer. I tell them use a really, um, like kind of statements and neutral language, like, um, hi, I hope that you had, you know, a fine time over at, you know, at whoever's house. Um, I'm really happy to see you and I'm glad you're here. Right. And I love that. And you can always, you know, leave the door open. Like, you know, if there's anything that you want to talk to about, you know, the separation or the divorce, right. I understand that it's hard to go back and forth. Just know that I'm always here to listen. And no matter what you're feeling or what thoughts you have, they're always okay. And I love you no matter what. So just kind of giving that statement with that open door will let the child know I'm in control of when I want to talk about it, what I want to say, and, and whatever it is will be accepted. So 
those are some tips too that I give co-parents um, in this situation. And I have a ton more, but <laughs> those are just some. Those are so helpful. And I think too, just reflecting back, you know, communication is really the core of everything. Yep. And so I think a lot of times children of narcissists, and maybe you can um, speak a little bit more to this, struggle with communication for those reasons, right? Because they've been either shut down or invalidated yes. or they're afraid to speak up or am I going to hurt their feelings, yes. you know? And so I think that open dialogue, that healthy communication, that unconditional love, yes, I can see how valuable that would be for not just the children, but then the children's relationship with their healthy parent yes. and relationships in general. Yes. And there is research to support that we really only need one healthy attachment. And if we have one healthy attachment, our, our prognosis and our success rate to be able to have healthy attachments moving forward is significantly higher, right? So, you know, to the, to the, the parents that are kind of suffering here, just know that, right? Like if you're, you know, if you are able to have that respect and that open communication and that safety with your child, um, that's gonna, that's everything, right? That's going to be huge. So, um, you know, Another thing with communication, this is something that comes up all the time where the child will come back from, you know, their, the parent's house who has narcissism and they'll say, we'll just say dad, for example, you know, dad told me that, you know, you're the one who wanted this divorce and that you're trying to break up the family and you're shutting us out or dad told me blah, 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 blah. Um, so what I kind of coach parents to say is, um, you know, that must've been hard to hear. Right. And, um, you know, that's not my opinion, you know, that's dad's opinion. And sometimes we disagree on things and it's okay for us to disagree. Right. And then I have them say something like, I wonder how you feel about that. Right. So again, not a direct question, but just like, I wonder what your feelings are about mm. it so that you're really eliciting. You're not kind of on the defense. You're not bad mouthing the other parent. You're acknowledging, yep, there's a disagreement here and disagreements happen and they're normal. And th that is what it is. But you're really kind of asking the, the kid, like, what how is this impacting you? What are yeah. your feelings about that situation? Because that's tough. And yeah, go ahead. Well, so I wonder, and this is just me getting really curious about this, because I want I this is the kind of stuff like that people are going to eat up and go, okay, they're like, everybody, I hope you have like, Gemma, I hope you have like a pen and paper out right now and are writing all of this down because this is really valuable. Like that wasn't my experience. Mm. What about some like, is this okay? Or is this off limits? Like, I don't talk to you about those things because those are adult issues. Perfect. Is that okay? Because yep. I feel like that's a way of being neutral about it, but yes. also invalidating, like you shouldn't be being put in the middle. Right. And this is, you know, that wasn't my experience, but these are adult issues and right. that's why I don't bring you into those yes. things. Perfect. That's not, that's not an appropriate topic. Um, it's an adult topic, right? And, okay. I, and I, I don't talk about those things. And in, in my family, in our family, in this house, these are the values that we have. And dad might not have those same values, but these are the values that we have and that are important to us. Mm. So kind of, it, it's, it's a way to say, and you know, some parents might even say like, that's not okay that he talked to you about that. That's, 
that's okay, but you're also kind of bordering on that, you know, putting dad in a negative view. And this is so hard for parents because they're like, well, how do I teach my kid? Like, I have to teach them that that's wrong. Yes. And there's ways to do that that are more neutral and giving the child more autonomy to figure it out for themselves. Now, I've also had it right where, um, you know, sometimes if the hostility is so high, parents will do like a neutral drop off, right? Um, and pick up point and where they have no interaction. A lot of times there is interaction and sometimes it can get really hostile, right? So if, if you know, the parent with NPD is kind of being aggressive or manipulative or offensive, um, I will tell the parent it's totally okay in that moment to model and demonstrate to your kids I don't like the way you're speaking to me. That's not, that's hurtful and that's not okay. And I'm going to walk away now. Um, and I understand that battles have to be picked. So if that doesn't feel like a safe thing to say to that, you know, in that um, interaction, because it could, you know, elicit more of a, um, an unsafe response or, or scary response, you can walk away, right? But then have a conversation with your kids later about, you know, I walked away because the things that, again, I'll just use dad, the things that dad was saying to me were, um, those are hurtful things and not okay things to say. And I wanted to remove myself and remove us from that situation. So that's why I walked away. So just make sure that you're following up so that you can still demonstrate and model those values to your kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. That was so much helpful information. And I'll tell you, since I've been, so I've kind of been on this like healing and growing journey from narcissistic abuse for about the last four and a half years now. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I had to work really hard on is not getting defensive, right? Because like you so quickly want to defend yourself and it takes practice. Mm -hmm. And so I love this approach of, and this is something that I've been practicing for the like last four years is approaching things from a place of neutrality. Yes. And it doesn't, you don't even have to be dealing with someone that has narcissism. It can be with anybody when you are in a conflict with someone, you know, even if it's over text, if totally. someone were to read it, a neutral party, you know, a third party, how would they interpret it? Sure. And I think that's like a healthy approach totally. so that you can start to take the emotion out of it mm -hmm. and, you know, bring sort of that rationalism. Is, is that a word? Mm -hmm. Bring, you know, bring kind of like yeah. a rational element to it. And so I feel like that was a lot of your tone was really coming from a place of neutrality and yes. neutralizing the situation. Yes. And it's helping you stay regulated um, it's demonstrating that to your kids if, if your kids are a witness to anything, but it's also not giving any fuel to the person with narcissism, right? Because they're kind of, I mean, maybe not always, right? But they're maybe hoping for some kind of response from you, right? And when you stay really calm and really objective and you're not engaging in kind of the, the bait that they're throwing out at you, um, you know, it's not working for them. It might make them more mad, but... Again, if you're the calm, cool parent, you know, now they're the ones that are looking not so good. Right. right? And so one of the things that I have heard about or that we hear about is narcissists wanting to control their victims. Is that something that you see a lot in children? Almost like it can be they want to control what 
college they go to or what career they do or what house they buy or yes. where they go on vacation or who they marry or yes. is that a common thing yes. that you see? Okay. Yes. So, you know, um, you've probably heard of like different um, kind of names or roles like the golden child, right? Or the scapegoat mm. or things like that. Golden child has never been spoken amongst <laughs> my siblings. So, yes, that I think that when... And again, this sounds really dehumanizing when like, I don't, I don't really like the way that, that, um, you know, kind of making these stereotypes and generalizations, but it's just easier to kind of do that. Um, so, well, I think, yeah. so you're not using it as a stereotype or a generalization. I think that you're bringing it here to say, these are some of the ways that you've heard about it. Yes. Here's how we talk about it clinically. Yes. Yes. So the person with narcissism, um, uh, what I often see, what what clients bring to me, right, is when they have children, they sort of view that as an opportunity for supply and status, right? So if they can shape and mold the child, you know, the way that they want them to be, um, it, it's almost kind of like like a trophy wife kind of concept, right? Like I can have this this child, this perfect kid who I can use to brag and boast about, right, which will, which will reflect well on me. And we know that we can't control kids, right? They like what they like, and they become who they become. And so if you're a kid that doesn't fall in line, right, with that, you are usually treated um, not very well, right? You're kind of the scapegoat or the the black sheep of the family, right? And then the one who is kind of more in compliance with what that parent is wanting with narcissism, they become sort of the golden child. Um, so they can do no wrong. And sometimes those kids kind of end up taking on or developing some of those same tendencies and may or may not be, you know, have NPD later in life themselves. Okay, that was going to be my next question. I was going to be like, okay, I want to ask you one more question yeah. before we kind of transition to our last topic. Yeah. And that is, how does it happen when you might have two children growing up in the same household, you have a narcissistic parent, one of the children is kind of the victim of narcissism, and one becomes, yeah, you know, takes on those narcissistic tendencies. So you're saying that's something that you see commonly? Like a lot. Yep. Okay. And what usually happens, what I see is the siblings do not get along, right? The, the one who is sort of takes the brunt of the abuse um, feels terrible, right? They feel insecure. They feel like they're mistreated. They feel like everything's unfair. And um, the, the, you know, the, the golden child, per se, um, might start to also take on some of that kind of bullying behavior, right? And they just, yeah, they don't, they're not close, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the the sibling, right, who is kind of the scapegoat, ends up sort of isolating themselves or alienating themselves from the family. They might be the ones that go no contact at some point, and then also with the sibling who's the golden child. So I'd see, I see that happening a lot. Yeah. Do you feel like that sometimes is the best case scenario for that person to kind of protect themselves? That is such an it depends question. Okay. And this is one of the things I work on with clients all the time. I and mean, boundaries is like one of the main reasons people come in besides mm. like, I need to figure out what the heck happened to me, right? And I need to heal. But they're like, how do I set boundaries? 
that is extremely nuanced. And I think the most extreme boundary is no contact. I've worked with a lot of people do, you know, on setting that boundary and going no contact, and it's been great for them. I would say most people, it's too complicated for them to do that. Um, they, you know, have, they would lose relationships with a lot of other family, right? Or they, um, they can't, you can't go no contact with your co-parent, right? Right. You know, or they're just in these situations where they can't. So it's more of, okay, how do we figure out the boundaries for your specific situation? Um, and we talk a ton about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you and I at the beginning were like, okay, we could talk for days <laughs> about like everything, but this has been so helpful. And I do want to kind of wrap up with one final topic Yeah. and it kind of follows like the the course of age, right? So we kind of started with the yeah. formative years yeah. and how to co-parent and, you know, actual NPD and on the spectrum. And you were saying how common, like even covert and overt are thrown around too. Like right. one of the newest Taylor Swift songs talks about covert, it says covert narcissism in it. Yeah. So that just speaks to how much the stuff is being talked about. Right. But what are some of the most common things you see as coping mechanisms or behaviors in relationships for adults yes. that grew up with parents of narcissism? And is there anything that can be done to help bring more awareness besides you being so wonderful and sharing sure. so much knowledge here today? Yeah. So I think of a couple of things. Um, it definitely impacts attachment, right? And I know you've done some segments on attachment and stuff, but um, it can make people, you know, more anxious attachers, right? Or more avoidant attachers. So, you know, depending on whatever attachment style develops, it can impact how, how they are in relationships. But one of the things that, um, that I found, like, I think this book was published in 2013 originally, Ross Rogenberg. Um, so he published or wrote a book called The Human Magnet Syndrome. So this is something I talk about um, with every client that comes in because he he developed a really amazing scale. It's called um, the continuum of self-value. So it's basically a spectrum of negative five to positive five where, uh, you know, in terms of how you'd rank your own value for yourself, negative five is like, you know, the least value, right? So we're going to have really kind of um, codependent people, really low self-esteem, right? And then all the way up to positive five, which are people who think their, you know, their needs are above everybody else, right? That's kind of, we're going more of the, the overt narcissist there. And zero, right, is in the middle. So that's kind of a nice balance of like, you know, we're humble, but we also have confidence, right? And even like negative one plus one. So what I have people do is rank themselves on that scale, Right. And likely they're going to be in the negative range if they are if they haven't done a lot of work yet. And if they are recently or still actively engaged in relationships with with a person with narcissism. And then I have them rank whoever the person is. Right. Whether it's a parent, sibling, boss, romantic partner, child um, on the positive, this positive side. Right. And the the concept is the the more. um the higher difference, right, between that, the greater the magnetic pull and attraction. And so what's happening, right, is like unconsciously because 
if you're on that negative side, you're always thinking, oh, I need to, um, I really like to like people please and take care of people, right? Because other people's needs are more important than my own. And then you meet somebody who is like, oh, my needs are more important than everyone else's, right? So I need someone who believes in that. What a perfect combo, right? Mm. Um, and and I'll, that is always unconscious, right, in the beginning. You're getting the love bombing or you're getting the whatever, which feels great to the other person because they're like, finally, I'm getting that external validation, you know? This feels wonderful. And then what happens is... Um, the euphoria starts to wear off for the person with narcissism. And they they see that kind of as a direct betrayal. Like this person, they're not fueling that for me anymore. So then they start to come into that kind of threat response, right? Like you are betraying me. Again, not very rational. Um, that's when you'll see some of the abuse come out. And then the other the victim is kind of going, but wait a minute, what happened? Like this felt so good and we were in such a good place and I just want to get back there, right? So then they start kind of love bombing the narcissist, which just feels fills their tank right up and then they go, okay. And then they do the love bombing again and it cycles. Mm. And this is basically um, an intermittent reinforcement pattern. So this is called trauma bonding, right? So it's an intermittent reinforcement pattern. It's the same thing that happens neurologically with people who are addicted to gambling, addicted to drugs, chasing that next high, going through withdrawal. I just need that feeling again, right? Um, win, win a big money, uh, you know, a lot in the casino, um, lose it all. Oh no, I need to get that back, right? So it is an addictive response in our neurology, which is why it's so hard to get out of those relationships for those people. And the person with narcissism, they want as much supply as they can get. So they're not really looking to get rid of you unless they find someone better. Um, or a whole slew of or people. a whole slew, yep. That they just continue to cycle through. Totally. As many as they possibly can. Yep, totally. I yep. know a little something about that. Yes, <laughs> yes. So yeah. is there something to be said? Because this is one of the things that, again, a little bit self-diagnosed here, yeah. is that when I met Chad, my ex in my book, okay. I once I find like once I got rid of him and I started doing the work and healing and growing, I figured out that the behaviors were familiar to me. And so there was yeah. and not that that's good, right? But there's sometimes comfort and familiarity. And mm -hmm. it's almost like, and it, it makes me sound a little bit silly, but it's almost like I didn't know the difference because that was what I had been surrounded by yes. my entire life. Yes, right. So I like to call this phenomenon like um, going back to the scene of the crime, right? So when we, when we experience a disruption in our relationship or our attachment with a primary caregiver, um, we oftentimes seek similar partners, again, unconsciously because of that familiarity, right? And because there's part of us that's like, I'm going to make it work this time. I'm going to get that validation I need. I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to change them and make them a better person, right? Or I'm going to da-da-da-da-da. And what we're not realizing is, you know, you're just hooking up with the same type of person, again, that's just going to repeat that same pattern, right? So it's very much a phenomenon that happens, yes, where it feels comfortable, which is also part of that magnet, right? Like there's some dynamic there that they're like, oh, yeah, that's that's right. That's what I'm used to. That feels good. But most of that is pretty unconscious, you know? Yeah. 
going back to the scene of the crime. I've never heard it described that way, but man, is that powerful. Mm -hmm. That is powerful. We all want to, right? We want to solve it. We want to figure it out. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to understand that we're not going to figure it out with the same type of person, right? We need to do our healing in a healthy relationship. And that just a really quick thing to say about that. When we're used to being in that trauma bonded, those high highs and those low lows, I'm working with a lot of clients right now on finding a healthy relationship because they're looking for that passion and that euphoria. And we're kind of talking about that's a little bit of a red flag here because it shouldn't feel that way or quite to that extent in the beginning when you just meet somebody, right? Yeah. I mean, sure, sparks are one thing, but you know, if they're telling you that you're the best thing ever and they love you on the second date, I mean, that's a huge red flag, right? So it's how do you retrain your brain to, to feel at like normal, healthy levels of positive emotion without needing that yeah. high, high. And um, almost recognizing that that's our body giving us a, a warning sign yes. that that's not actually a good thing. Right. That's exactly. like your body being like, hey, something's off here. Right. Um, and paying attention to that and like trusting ourselves. And I think that's a big issue for people that have been on, you know, kind of that victim side of narcissism is learning to trust yourself and your mm -hmm. intuition and your gut and your feelings and that they are valid. Totally. And it gets confused, right? Because then people will say, oh, but, you know, he's just so boring. I mean, he checks off all these boxes and he's such a good listener and we have all this stuff in common, but he's so boring. And I'm like, okay, don't, you know, trust, like their gut is telling them he's not the one because he's boring. So it's, that's why it gets so tricky. Trust your gut and challenge it sometimes too. And that's what's so hard for people is when do I trust and when, you know, when do I need to challenge it a little bit? But um, it's, yeah, it's complicated. It is. It's hard. And I think that's a good, you know, thing to talk about, like figuring out, especially when you're talking about romantic partnerships and relationships, figuring out what's sustainable. Mm -hmm. Is that high, high and low, low, something that's sustainable? Right. No. So like, what are you really looking for? Are you looking for that short term feel good? Or are you really looking for a long term lasting, healthy relationship? Yes. There's a big difference between the two. Yes. Yep. And that's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. It, yep. Oh my gosh. Well, Tanya, thank you yeah. so much for bestowing so much wisdom. I sure. know this is going to help so many people. I hope so. It and I know it will because we covered so much and I know like I could talk to you for days about yeah. this stuff. I could say so much more too. Yeah. I know. So maybe we'll have to have you back sure. and we can talk about more. <laughs> but I'll link that book that you recommended. Okay. Um, and then yeah. I'll also put in your information. So where can yeah. people find out a little bit more about you and what you do? Yeah. So I have um, a profile on psychology today. Um, and that has a link to my to my website, which I'm trying to update right now, but um, and then all my contact information. So that's probably the best way. Perfect. Yeah. Well, in all transparency, that's how I found you. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. so I will link all of your information. Great. Thank you again. I cannot yeah, thank you enough for, for being me. here today. Yeah. Thank good. you. Wow. Was that ever a meaningful and powerful conversation? I hope that you found something in there really useful, either for yourself, if you were maybe nodding along like I was, or if you thought of somebody else during this episode, you know, to share it with them. I am just so grateful to Tanya for spending her time with us here today. 
again, because it was out of the goodness of her own heart. It's not that she was here trying to get more patients because she's already got a waiting list, but because she is so passionate about this content and this information and helping these children and victims of narcissist abuse. And I just really appreciated her approach and her perspective. I will again link all of her information in the show notes. And until next time, Jim, shine bright and let's get growing. <laughs>